0: And I don't care where your marriage is today, with Christ there is hope for your marriage. And you saw that right there in that testimony. And I want to speak a word of encouragement today uh, regarding marriage and how God designed marriage to be. And I hope the Lord uses it and, and, and blesses it. I do want to say a brief uh, good morning to our Cedar Lake and HP campus as we uh, join together technologically as one church and uh, trust that the Lord is blessing you and those campuses. As I begin this message uh, on marriage, I want you to know that I am very much preaching these truths to my own heart, to my own marriage, and Even writing this message and preparing has been a challenge to me uh, to renew my commitment to some of these very core principles. We all need God's Word to speak to us, and uh, I trust that we all will submit to that today and submit our marriages uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, the biggest news this week was the inauguration of a new president, In the United States, Donald Trump, 45th President of the United States. You may have watched it. I did. I am a little bit of a political junkie, and it was uh, just intriguing to see the transition of power and the uh, way that we do that. But you know, inaugurations by design are intended to highlight the importance of the position, and so you have great pomp, you have great circumstance, you have you know, the gathering of the leaders of the country and uh, pretty music and trumpets blaring and, you know, people by the hundreds of thousands that come to those kinds of events. There are traditions that are followed. There is solemnity. There is uh, grandeur. There's a sense of historical significance. There is pageantry. All of these are intended to uh, be befitting the importance of the presidency of the United States. Now, at these kind of gatherings, inevitably, they'll do sort of these man-on-the-street interviews, maybe you've seen these, where uh, they'll just find some random person, and inevitably, they find some uh, you know, sort of half-witted individual where they say, uh, why are you here? And he'll say, I don't know. And they'll say, well, what is the purpose of all of these people and all of this? And he'll say, I'm not sure. And uh, maybe even they'll say, hey, do you know who the new president is? And, you know, sometimes these people, it's crazy how little they know, right? And they'll say, I don't know. I just heard it was going to be a great party, and I'm here. So you have these people that are part of something that is really, really important, but are clueless as to the higher purpose of why they are there and it seems to me that there are a lot of married people like that lots of married people that are part of something really really important but they have little or no idea why they are there and what the highest or the higher purpose of marriage is they found somebody that said okay i'll marry you they get married but the why of marriage has been lost on them. They're married, but they don't know why they're married. Or maybe they know and they just refuse to submit to it. There are people like that as well. Marriage has a higher purpose than marriage. Did you know that? The purpose of marriage is not marriage, there's something grander, there's something more significant. And for our marriages to thrive over the long run, if we're going to ever get past like the honeymoon, if we're ever going to have our marriages be what God intended them to be, we have to, As if you are married, uh, it, to understand, why am I married? Like what is the purpose of her, her being here or him being here and us being together, really? And we have to pursue that purpose, this is my thing I want to say today, we have to pursue that purpose... As the uniting purpose of the marriage. Not children, not sex, not companionship, but this uniting principle. Why does marriage exist? Now, to get at that, I'm going to use one little verse as an excuse to read a bigger section about marriage that we just need to read regularly around here and be reminded of. And so I'm gonna read Ephesians 5, uh, beginning in verse 22. But there's only one real thing I want to say out of this whole thing. But it's good to rehearse God's plan for marriage. So let me read now. If you're married, been a Christian very long, you know these words well. Here's what the Apostle Paul wrote, Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now that's a long section with a whole lot that could be said about the role of a husband and the role of a wife and what that whole thing is all about. You you caught the summary there, though. I think husbands, love your wives. Agape your wives. How are you doing with that? Cricket, 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 right? (laughs) Wives, submit and respect your husbands. How are you doing with that? Chirp, 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 okay? But that's what it says. I don't think I misread anything there. That's God's plan. It can't be any simpler, is it, right? I mean, why do we mess this up? It's so simple, isn't it? Just there it is, do that, everything's good. Well, Apparently, it wasn't that simple in the first century. Apparently, first century couples struggled a little bit with this whole, like, agape your wives, sacrificially, and uh, submit to your husband thing. And so the Apostle Paul, he doesn't just sort of list the way that it's supposed to be. He he wants them in the first century, those first century sort of rascally couples that are struggling with this sort of thing, he wants them to connect what they are married with some higher thing that the marriage apparently is really all about. And we again find here that he doesn't say, hey, do this because marriage is all about marriage. It's about being married. Marriage is being married. He doesn't say that. Marriage is about sexual union and intimacy and pleasure. He doesn't say that. It's about companionship, having somebody there with you. He doesn't say that. It's about reproducing and having children. He doesn't say that. None of those things are the thing that Paul ties the purpose of marriage and all of these roles to. Now, what does he connect it to? Look at verse 31. And these are very familiar words. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, that should sound familiar to you if you've been a Christian for any amount of time. Because this is, a, this is arguably the most important verse about marriage in the entire Bible. And it's not the only place that we find it here in Ephesians 5. In fact, we find it significantly in two other places. The first, we find it way back in Genesis 2.24, way back in the beginning when God created marriage in the first place. Now, why is that significant? If you go back to Genesis, we're not going to do it. But if, if you go back there, you'll see right in the midst of when he is you know, creating Adam, creating Eve, bringing Eve to Adam. It's not good for a man to be alone, all of this. There is this same verse. Right there in the created purpose, the created uh, order of marriage, we find this verse. Man shall leave his father, mother, leave to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. And we find from this that marriage is a divinely institute is a divine institution it is purposed by god to be what it is marriage is something now you can have people in black robes come along and say no marriage is something else which we had this last year in the united states but those individuals in black robes redefining marriage actually doesn't change the nature of what marriage actually is and the reason that courts and presidents and kings and You know, magazine editors can't change what marriage is, is because God defines what marriage is. You might as well redefine gravity. People in black robes can say, gravity is now this. And gravity laughs and says, no, I am what I've always been. Okay? And marriage is what it has always been, no matter who tries to redefine it. Notice it is between a man and a woman. Just that is scandalous today, to say marriage is between a man and a woman, but note the text, that's what it says, okay? A man who leaves his primary relational role as son within a family, leaves that unit and attaches himself to a wife, and the implication there is that she also is leaving father and mother, and now this new relationship is the most defining relationship in their life. They are husband and they are wife. They are a plurality in unity, like the, the Trinity itself is three in one. A man and a woman is, is two in one. So we find this in the creation of marriage in the first place. Now the second place we find this is in Matthew 19, and the words of Jesus himself regarding What that, the nature of the covenant of marriage. Jesus is asked in Matthew 19, he's asked by some religious leaders, hey, is it okay for a man to divorce his wife? Now, the the culture of that day, there was, like ours, a very laid back approach to that commitment in marriage, and there were even key religious leaders in the first century, Jewish religious leaders in the first century that were teaching that a man could divorce his wife for any other any reason that he wanted to. I'm tired of you. You burn the toast. You're out. Gone. Okay? Enough. Can't deal with this anymore. Out you go. And so they asked Jesus, hey, what do you think? Can a man divorce his why? For any reason that he, that he wants to. And Jesus' reply here is, is nothing short of shocking uh, because <clears throat> what he does here is he appeals back to Genesis 2. And he says it again, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Where have I heard that before? Genesis 2.24. He adds this, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And the people that were listening to this, their jaws hit the floor. And they're like, what did he just say? And, they, and and you might say, well, no, maybe we're misinterpreting that. No. The disciples who were there understood what Jesus was saying, and here was their response in verse 10. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry now, I wonder what Peter's wife thought when she heard him say that. I imagine Peter got an earful on the way home. What do you mean you better not to marry? I can't believe you would say something like that. I'm the greatest good that you are ever going to get. But the disciples heard what he was saying. Marriage is a God thing. What God has put together, let not man separate. I wonder if spouse, you look at your spouse as a God-ordained and God-created marital spouse in your life. They are in your life by divine decree, and that union between you and your spouse is sanctioned by God and was established by God. And Jesus' whole appeal is that marriage is a God thing and what God has put together, man shouldn't come along and go, I'm out of here. Let not man separate. I wonder if you realize how sacred, therefore, your marriage is. It is a sacred reality, in your life. You say, that doesn't seem very sacred to me. You should smell her breath in the morning. You should see what he's like after a day of work. Yesterday was not a good day for us. Sure doesn't feel very sacred right now. And this is the struggle, I think, is to maintain an understanding of how special every marriage is. Not just the, you know, the the apparently successful ones, not just the long-lasting ones, but one second after that couple has been united, that is a sacred reality. Because of who brought them together? Who is the author of this thing? It reminds me of sometimes, you know, in the art world, they'll... Somebody, you know, typically it tends to be in Europe somewhere where they'll, you know, they'll pull some old picture down and they'll like pull it out of the frame and they find somehow behind the frame, they'll find some little doodle or sketch from some famous artist. This happened just a month ago in December, somewhere in Europe. They pulled one off and they discovered this little sketches, paper, like pencil sketches from Leonardo da Vinci and those sketches were immediately valued at 16 million dollars it wasn't even like a full painting it was just him sort of doodling and yet so valuable what makes doodles and scratchings so valuable the person who did it and your marriage no matter how happy successful or not you are is sacred because of who has brought you together? Almighty God. Now you might say, hey, our marriage is no Mona Lisa. It's better than a Mona Lisa. And more valuable than a Mona Lisa. In the eyes of God. And I would say this is the challenge in marriage. I'm, I'm four and a half years in, okay? I've learned a few things, not as many as many of you have, but I'm four and a half years into, into being married. And I just remember I got married like I'm standing where I got married. That's kind of fun. I got married right here on this stage where I'm standing right now. I said, I do, I do, I do. Many of you are here, you know. And went off on the honeymoon, and the honeymoon was like an enchanting experience, one of the most wonderful times of my entire life. And then we got home, and you start living life, and you know, we got pregnant right away, blah, blah. (laughs) And you know, when you're standing behind your wife just rubbing her back as she pukes in the toilet, somewhere along the way you think, this sure doesn't feel like the honeymoon anymore. Over time, it's so easy in marriage, I think, for sacred things to feel normal. Sacred things to feel kind of almost mundane. And if not checked, it's not very long before she becomes the old ball and chain. And you hear people talk like that. What is that? They have lost the sacredness of what God has done. So how do we fight this in marriage? Some people, they go on exotic trips, and they buy lavish gifts, nightly foot rubs. All of those are good, by the way, and helpful, but not the key, not the key. And the Apostle Paul knew what first century Christian couples had to realize regarding their own marriage. And we see this now back in Ephesians 5. He says this, He's got all this talk about husbands and wives, and you submit, and you lead, and you love sacrificially, and la, la, la. And he gets, and he says this, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. Now, so he does this like flipperoo thing. You expect him to say, and this is what marriage is all about. And instead, he says, this is not what marriage is all about. There's actually a mystery to this because marriage is not about these things primarily. I say that it refers to Christ and the church. So what I want you to hear today is this, that if in your marriage, the purpose of your marriage is in your marriage a mystery, where your spouse or you don't clearly understand what this whole thing is all about, You are going to struggle because you are going to look to her, to him, to marriage, to children, to sex, to some other thing as being where you are going to derive meaning. And God never intended marriage to be the source of the meaning. And he never intended your spouse to be your source of meaning and happiness. Further complicating this is that no matter who you marry, you are married to a sinner. Your spouse is a sinner, amen? (laughs) (laughs) You are married to a sinner. And sinners chronically disappoint us. And guess what sinners chronically do? Sin. And in marriage, they most often sin against us. And you look to that person and that relationship and say, well, however our marriage is doing is going to be my source of joy. You are going to be on a constant roller coaster. Marriage needs a higher purpose. Don't get married because your family expects it. Don't get married because people are joking around, hey, how long until you're gonna, you know, get married? I fought that for a couple decades uh, myself. And don't do it. Let me, let me make something else clear. Don't get married for sex. I remember hearing that when I was single, okay? And I kind of came to that subject, uh, as you, I've talked about, it, it, great inexperience. And so I wonder, you know, you kind of wonder when you don't know. And I remember hearing a pastor, he, I mean, his words are seared in my brain. He got up, he, I was at the service myself. I heard him say it. He goes, he goes, listen, my wife is smoking hot. He said, but I would not recommend getting married for sex. You know, and the singles are all like this, and the teenagers are all like the you know, wondering. Listen, it's true. Because sex is just another created thing. With gifts and blessings, but a horrible basis for a relationship. Cue the film of all the Hollywood, beautiful, gorgeous, uh, and based on their films, very experienced sexual partners that uh, married nine months. Now I'm tired of you. Don't get married for sex. What does every marriage need? And this brings us now to this series, The Kingdom of God, and And what we're talking about. Because the kingdom of God is God working in this world to reconstitute what sin broke. And what sin broke was many things, but one thing it broke was human marriage. And right away, Adam and Eve, Adam's blaming Eve, Eve's blaming Satan, you got all this discord and fighting, and right away, you know, you got brothers killing each other, and the family unit is just annihilated. Sin destroys the good things that God puts in this world. But the kingdom of God now is the reign of God through Christ, messaged in the gospel, constituted in the human heart as the human the sin, realizes his or her sin and submits now to Jesus by faith as king and savior. And now Jesus becomes king of the human heart. And now I want what God wants in my life. And the brokenness that we experience in marriage is one of the things that God wants to put back together and will when we submit to Jesus in our life and over our marriage. I heard that in the testimony that we, the video testimony the Halls shared. When Christ comes and takes over a life, and when Christ comes and takes over a marriage, things change. Okay? Things change. What does a marriage need after the fall? It needs two people who can honestly pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, in our marriage as it is in heaven. Now, who prays that kind of prayer sincerely? It is only a person who is, in their heart, submitted to Jesus as king. The whole world prays the Lord's prayer. They mouth the words, part of a religious experience. But the authentic desire for Jesus to rule in your life and in your marriage and for his will and purpose to guide the way that you are married flows from Jesus enthroned in that human heart. And might it be that one reason we have so many struggling marriages is that there is not a full submission to Christ in our life. We want him to get us to heaven, but we don't want to apply him in the day-to-day of life and to bow our knee to him, even in our marriage relationships. Two sinners living for their own kingdom produces massive conflict. And all kinds of power struggles and manipulations and passive-aggressive behavior. But when a husband and wife bow in submission to Jesus, their marriage ceases to be about their marriage. The husband quits looking to the wife to be his Messiah. The the wife quits looking to, to the husband to be her Savior. Their hope and happiness is somewhere else. Here's the key. In marriage, it's not about me. It's not about me. It's not about my happiness. It's not about me getting my way. Can you say that? Do you agree with that today? In your marriage, honestly, it's not about me. Our marriage is about the glory of Christ and the, the submission to his kingship and his rule in our, in our marriage and the honoring of him in our life. And this relocation of purpose for marriage will transform it. I just think we ask of marriage what it can't deliver. We sell a, a thing to, you know, young people. you got to get married. Oh, you're, you're gonna, How often I heard that all those years I was single, even pastoring here, good people here. But you sort of get this insinuation, you're not complete. You're not happy. You're not a real person until you get married. Pastor, when are you going to take care of that little issue in your life? I don't know, but get off my back, right, and get some good theology. Ironically, sometimes it was people that I knew because I was their pastor, they weren't happy in their marriage. Well, I just can't wait to be miserable like you are. (laughs) Apparently, misery loves company. Here's what I want to say. We have to look to Jesus for our hope and our happiness and our joy and not to a spouse and not to marriage and not to children and not to sex and not to friendship and not to companionship. And Jesus is far better than providing those, far better providing those things than any sinner can be. Your spouse is a sinner. They are. Don't look to them for your happiness. Spouses right now look to each other and say, you're not my Messiah. Go ahead. Can we amen that now together, right? (laughs) You're not my Jesus. I'm not not worshiping you. Listen to what Doug Wilson says. It It proceeds from an obedient heart, and the greatest desire of an obedient heart is the glory of God, not the happiness of the household. If we might paraphrase paraphrase the catechism, the chief end of marriage is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The reason we are miserable in our marriages is because we have idolized them. But the glory of God is more important than our domestic happiness. Quit worshiping your spouse and quit worshiping some ideal that you've had in your mind because you watch Disney movies. And you thought, this is the way it's going to be. I'm going to ride off in the sunset and be happy ever after. No, you're not. Not by marriage. It doesn't work that way. You say, I don't worship my spouse. Oh, she wants me to come and bow down to her? I ain't going to bow down to her. I don't worship my spouse, but if he doesn't change, I'm out of here. Those are all signs you're worshiping your spouse. So how do I have a kingdom-first marriage? Let's talk about it, get a little more specific here. How do we do this? And the first thing I, and that I, and I hope you're getting this as I'm, as I'm sharing here, is that we have to be clear in our marriages what the point of the marriage is. So many people, they just get married, and they don't know why they're getting married. They're like the, the guy I mentioned at the parade, the inauguration parade. I, I don't know why I'm here. You are part of something unbelievably important. We're all going to get to heaven. Trust me, we're all going to get to heaven, and we're going to find out that in this world, some of the things that we thought were really important really are not that important, and some things that didn't seem that important were, are incredibly important, and I promise you marriage is one of them. We're going to find out that God values marriage much higher than we do. The one purpose that we have to have in marriage, this uniting principle between a husband and spouse, is to honor and to glorify Jesus in our home. To honor and to glorify Jesus in our marriage. To honor and glorify Jesus in the attitudes that we have for one another. To honor and glorify Jesus in the way that we confess our sins to one another and forgive one another, to honor uh, Jesus in the way that we raise children, if God grants us children, and the way that we relate for, through our marriage to other people, for people to see within our marriage the gospel of Jesus itself. Spouses, is that, is that like the way you roll? Is that in your consciousness and awareness? And my conviction is the vast majority of married couples don't even talk about it and don't even think about it like i wonder if i would have pulled people maybe i should do it before the next service pull people in the comments as you're coming in what's the purpose of your marriage if i was to have asked you before i got talking like this what would you say honestly would you be like i well i honey what do you think i don't I well i or would it just be natural Whether you eat or drink or be married, do it all to the glory of God. Christian couple, establish this like in your vernacular. Understand why you are married. No verses like Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Whether you eat or drink or be married, do it all to the glory of God. For from him and to him and through him are all things. To him be the glory. This is, the way, this is what Christian marriage is. And I, I appeal to you because in the world and Dr. Phil and the people, psychology, whatever you're listening to, you're not going to get this. This is the word of God. This is the Bible. This is the purpose of God. This is why God created marriage and why he gave you the spouse that you have was to bring him honor and glory. And if that's the big purpose of why marriage exists, Have it established in your mind and with your spouse. This is why we are married. This is the big deal. And evaluate your marriage accordingly. Can I challenge you? Maybe today, and this could feel awkward. You've been married a long time. We don't talk like this. Okay, talk like this. Like what? How do you think we are doing bringing glory to Jesus in our marriage? How about just ask that question? Honey, how do you think we're doing with that? I agree with Pastor Steve. I think that's the purpose of our marriage. How are we doing with that? What do you think? What things could we change in our relationship that would enhance his reign in our marriage? And like, talk about those things. Write them down, paint them over your bed. Whatever it takes, get it in your marriage. This is not about us. This is about Christ, our marriage itself. So be clear what the purpose is. Secondly, if we're going to pray honestly, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, it means that the spouses are embracing God's plan For marriage, God's design for marriage, and God has a design for marriage. It's all over in the Bible. And we submit to that as an act of worship to Jesus as King. Now, I don't have a lot of time, but just to summarize, what is God's blueprint? Husbands who love and lead their wives sacrificially. Wives. Who submit and respect to their their husbands as friends, lovers, and companions. Quick summary. That's God's blueprint. Husbands, we often resist that call to servant lead and to sacrifice for our wives. And wives, it's so easy to resist God's design for your role in the marriage and give you a desire to usurp your husband and to take the leadership. But we cannot ask for God's blessing in our marriage when we refuse to accept God's blueprint for marriage. May I say that again? We cannot, we cannot ask for God's blessing in marriage when we refuse to accept God's blueprint in marriage. So you can say, God, please help my marriage get better. I pray, God, that you would bring more joy to our marriage. I help you to help us get through these rough spots and all that. You can pray that all you want. But if your heart is not willing to submit to what God has already told you about what your marriage should be like, don't expect some blessing to come in spite of it. Now here's the good news. When a man is in submission to Jesus as king, God makes him a better husband. When a wife is in submission to Jesus as king, God makes her a better wife. And the more that we grow in this relationship that we have with God's the old triangle, you've probably seen that before, the closer we get to God, the closer we get to each other, very simple. But there's a truth to that. Similarly, the more that I am in rebellion against God, the more that I am lukewarm in my walk with God, the more that I am forgetting about God's grace in my life, the worse husband I become. More selfish, more self-centered, it's all about me. Which leads into the third thing I want to say is that we must, therefore, apply the gospel every day that we are married. Listen to Tim Keller. The reason that marriage is so painful and yet so wonderful is because it is a reflection of the gospel, which is painful and wonderful at once. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. That's a great quote. And this is the secret weapon, okay? If you're, if you're coming, you know, you, you, I've heard all this other stuff before. Give me one secret. I want that secret thing to a happy marriage. Okay, well, here's the secret thing you must preach the gospel every day to yourself and over your marriage. The gospel begins with a self understanding I am a sinner. I'm a sinner. I'm not a good person. I'm not better than other people in the eyes of God. I am depraved and I am guilty. And if you didn't know that, get married and you'll discover it. Okay? Because marriage amplifies, I read some guy said marriage amplifies who we are. So if you're an angry person when you get married, you're gonna be really angry. If you are a fearful person when you get married, you're gonna be really fearful. If you are a bitter person and inclined to that, when you get married, you're going to be more bitter than you ever realized. Because marriage amplifies who we are. It also urges us to minimize our own failures and to maximize, in our own eyes, the failures of our spouse. Okay? So, my issues are small. Her issues are huge. The gospel does the opposite. The gospel doesn't maximize the failures of others. It maximizes my understanding of my own failures. And that I am myself a sinner. And it magnifies my own sin in my own eyes. So here's a way that you can know if you preach the gospel to yourself this morning. In your estimation, who is the biggest problem in your marriage? Be honest. In your marriage, who... Is the biggest problem. And if right now in your gut you believe your spouse is the biggest problem in your marriage, you are failing to apply the gospel. Here's a helpful thing to say in marriage I am a sinner married to a sinner. When Jennifer and I are in a rough patch, I bring that to my mind. I honestly do. It helps me somehow. I just remind myself, why is there discord or why is there conflict? Because I am a sinner. And so is she. But it begins with me. I am a sinner. Keller, again, if two spouses each say, I'm going to treat my self-centeredness as the main problem in the marriage, you have, <clears throat> you have the prospect of a truly great marriage. Who's the biggest problem? I am. The gospel brings humility. And here's the encouragement, friends, today. That spouses who are motivated to honor Jesus by becoming better spouses, or say it this way, by being a godly spouse, become better husbands and wives. The secret getting out of here isn't like, you know some little magic formula it is daily dying to self being reminded that I am a sinner embracing again the grace of God through his son Jesus to me and then applying that <clears throat> grace and love to the flawed individual that God brought me together with in my marriage and you do that over and over and over again and over time, lo and behold, you say, I actually am sort of enjoying our marriage, not because I'm looking to my marriage for my joy, but because I'm looking to Jesus as my source of joy. But the byproduct of that then is the blessing that marriage, God intended it to be, not as the source of it, but as the byproduct of it. I think of the, the quote from Spurgeon, I looked at Christ and a dove of peace flew in my heart. I looked at the dove and it flew away. When we look to Christ, we're like Peter walking on the water. We look to the problems in marriage, we look to ourselves. down we go. Might you be unhappy today in your marriage or dissatisfied in your marriage because you are looking to your marriage for something that God never intended it to provide? And maybe the pain that you are experiencing today, God could use it To point your eyes to the only place where lasting joy comes from and that is a faith relationship with the son of god who loved me and gave himself up for me so if you leave here today you're determined i'm going to be more joyful in my marriage you're going to fail welcome to unhappiness okay if you leave here today more committed to finding joy and meaning in Jesus, you might yet be happy in your marriage. Or to say it this way, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto you.